0: This episode contains references to war, and everything that goes with it. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 122, The Field of Battle. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara on the rohe of Mueu Poko, Taranaki Whanui, Tiatiawa, and Natitoa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons, such as Jean and Jenny. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Last time, we went through the beginnings of a military campaign in pre-European Aotearoa, from gathering allies to logistics. Today we will continue on that journey, looking at the strategies Māori employed and how they engaged in battle. Without horses, carts, steam engines or anything else that might propel them along the land, the two ways that Māori got around were by waka or good old fashioned walking, or running I guess if they were in a hurry. Wakataua war canoes, were employed when the distance they needed to travel would be too far on foot. On average, a waka could hold 70 people, and could operate both in coastal waters and in rivers or lakes, sometimes involving portage, which is the act of taking the waka out of the water and dragging, carrying, or otherwise moving it overland to another body of water, which could be pretty arduous if this had to be done through forest, or over hills. If walking on foot, towa usually followed tracks that were frequented by travellers, which in turn followed the easiest routes through the land, such as along the ridgelines of hills, which was good for a towa because it afforded them visibility over the valleys to see any other approaching parties. If not along a ridgeline, they could follow a stream at the bottom of a valley, or along a flat beach on the coast. If walking along the beach, a towa would sometimes try and time their movements with the tide, so that the high tide would wash away their tracks. In addition, towa would often walk single file, in part to make their tracks harder to see, and hide their numbers if anyone did actually see their footprints. This did have the slight downside, though, of larger towa being stretched out over the land quite considerably. Not all routes were created equal, though. Sometimes a towa might avoid travelling along a particular path for fear that the enemy placed supernatural quote-unquote mines on the road that would kill them, such as burying a spear on a trail while saying some karakia. This could be counteracted if a tohunga of immense mana walked ahead of the Towa, his mana itself rendering the mines inert. Streams could also be supernaturally contaminated with stones or poles. However, not all Māori believed that these strategies were very effective, or that they were a thing at all. Some just saw it as needless superstition. That didn't mean the actual atua of the land couldn't harm them though. These people were walking with hostile intent on someone else's rohe, which would mean the Towa would need to placate the spirits that inhabited the area to ensure they weren't disturbed. While heading towards the site of battle, the Towa wanted to be aware of anyone who might be trying to ambush them or otherwise lay a trap, a common tactic in Maori warfare. Just like armies anywhere else in the world, scouts called toro, Tute, or tutai were extremely important for intelligence gathering. Scouts were sent ahead of a towa to find out what was going on in an area and to report back to the main group. In this context, a towa was sometimes called the matua, possibly on account of being the nucleus of all activity for any raiding or scouting parties, since matua also means parent. As scouts do, if they spotted an enemy force, they would fall back to warn their own army, who may send forth a hunuhunu, a small host of men to engage the enemy, either in raiding, or perhaps head on, with the intention of retreating back to a point where the enemy could be ambushed. Sometimes a scout's job was a lot more dangerous, such as trying to find out information about the type or condition of the defences at a par, or how many people were in that par. In one case, Te Arawa sent a scout to find out information on an enemy pā, and he just waltzed on in as if he was returning from a mission. He then had a wander around, and just left. All calm, no fuss. But had he been found out, things could have gone very differently. One of the common ways to employ scouts was when the Towa was marching in kaikape stance. This meant ten scouts would go on ahead, with two called Kiore who would go extremely far ahead of the Towa to keep an eye out for danger, reporting back if they saw anything. They would frequently fall back and be refreshed with new scouts to ensure they didn't become tired. Just like all paths aren't made the same, all towa aren't either. They could be given slightly different names for various reasons. Such as towa toto, a quote, war party seeking blood vengeance, end quote. A towa tapu, a quote, war party under restriction. And Towa Fafatiro Rako, a quote, war party that tramples the forests. If the Towa was travelling for blood vengeance, a towa toto, there was a custom that needed to be observed. The first person they encountered would be killed. Who that person was didn't really matter. They would be chased down and taken out regardless. This person was known as the maroro kokote Ihuwaka, the flying fish crossing the bow of the canoe. Sometimes this was meant to be the utu for an insult. However, since there wasn't much distinction made as to who the person was, they may not even be from the right hapu, which would cause even more problems. In the same vein, the first person killed when battle had commenced was called the mataika, the first fish. Though there are some other names that all mean roughly the same thing. It was a great honor to kill the first enemy in battle, so it was often achieved by a toa of some note, or by a young soldier who was hungry to make a name for himself. Usually, killing the first man would be accompanied by the person calling out "koe te mataika," basically telling everyone that the mataika had been achieved. Sometimes the Tōwa may want to trick the enemy into thinking they had made the mataika, so they would strike a tree and make the call out. Alternately, a gourd could be used to do this too, as smacking and breaking it with a patu would make a similar sound to cracking a dude's skull. The whole idea was to kind of piss off the enemy to the point where they would be drawn out into a less favourable situation. Once the mataika had been slain, their heart would be cut out and offered to an atua in a similar way that the first fish caught from the sea would be offered to Tangaroa. We are now approaching the moment of battle. The Towa is nearing the pa that they want to take, or the enemy Towa that they want to defeat. Just like when they set out on their campaign, though, the Tonga present would try to divine the outcome of the battle either through ritual or by observing tohu around them. Things like if someone gets a dry mouth just before battle, that's usually not a great sign, or if the Towa got too excited and became disorganized, or if a lower-ranked chief attempted to assume command. A particularly bad omen was the paraneke, the sounds of women or children talking, laughing, and singing, which could be heard in the bush at night. Sometimes it wasn't thought to be people, but Tanifa chattering. In terms of rituals, one form of divination that could be performed involved a war god called Tehukita, who had an aria of a lizard. If there was a Tohunga present who had a connection to Tehukita, they would call upon the atua to appear in lizard form. When he did, the tonga would pick him up and pass the god to the person next to him, who then passed him to the next person, and so on, until everyone had a bit of a go with him. If the lizard crawled into someone's hand of its own accord, then that was a sign that person was doomed to death in the coming battle, and so he was sent home. Tohu weren't just used to predict the fate of Toa, but also other aspects of the battle, such as the weather. The aurora australis, or something similar, could indicate good or bad signs, depending on which direction they were facing. The aurora australis being the southern hemisphere version of the aurora borealis, or northern lights. The red glow on the horizon in the morning or evening could indicate bad weather or wind, depending on the nature of the glow. Or sometimes, the phenomena itself was viewed as a demon, and as such was feared. Rain and mist were usually considered to be good signs, since they would cover their tracks or conceal their forces, meaning they could use that to their advantage. The other thing to take care of before battle was to do some karakia, to make the enemy weaker, their morale waver, slower in battle, and so on. Conversely, they could empower the reciters allies, making them stronger, faster, or more willing to stand their ground. Karakia could be spoken over weapons too, making them more effective, perhaps even to the point where the smallest wound will result in death. This would be done by bringing the weapon to your mouth to more easily speak the words into it, and was often finished by spitting on the weapon to give the whole thing more power and emphasis. In other cases, it could be to make a thrown spear fly true and hit the target, sometimes being said mid-combat just before the spear is thrown. Other karakia related to the weather, such as calming storms or otherwise making the weather more favourable. Some karakia might also be used to ensure an enemy who was wounded didn't die, if the Toa wanted to take him alive. Much like warfare in medieval Europe, most battles that Maori fought weren't out in a field where two armies met. Typically, most of the action that a toa would see would be around trying to take a pā, though Māori weren't too fond of lengthy sieges either. We'll get more into how to take a pā next time, but for the rest of this episode, I want to talk about those unusual open battles. Just because they were atypical doesn't mean they never happened, And so there's some interesting stuff that we can dive into. Battles like this could occur in open fields, in the bush, on the beach, or otherwise in a situation unrelated to the siege of a par. They could occur if both sides agreed to meet at a given place, so they could hash things out. As part of this, they would also often agree to not ambush each other when they got there. A battle through this type of agreement was called a pai though this may be slightly incorrect, as that can be translated as counterattack, as well as to meet and escort. Even when the battle was arranged, this didn't necessarily exclude the use of trickery or surprise. In one case, French explorer Marion Dufresne had met two groups that were about to engage in battle. And he brought one of the rangatira aboard his ship for a chat. When the rangatira disembarked, the chief grabbed the hand of a French officer and pulled him to the front lines of his hapu as they advanced. Supposedly, the sight of a white guy, who was probably rightfully shitting himself, struck fear into the enemy. It's not really clear why this worked. Perhaps the opposing side thought the ship and its crew was against them. In any case, the musket shots that were fired in the air as a warning probably helped as well, causing the other side to run. Pitched Open battles usually only occurred when both sides felt they had a good chance to win, without resorting to ambush. If your force was too few in number, or less experienced, or just tired, you were more likely to try ambush the enemy to give yourself an advantage. But if nearly all things were equal, both sides would often feel comfortable in an even fight in the open. Before the battle begins, both sides would perform a haka peru, peru usually with the rangatira at the back encouraging his troops. Although the use of haka was varied, in this context it could be done to potentially intimidate the enemy by showing off their weapon prowess and fitness, or to provoke a garrison in a pā to leave and confront the Towa where it would be less favourable but also could be used as a cover for other units getting into position. Another part of it was potentially to get the soldiers really amped up and ready to charge into battle. In that way, acting similar to the Anglo-Saxon war cries that they performed before combat. However... Māori liked surprise and ambush as tactics quite a lot, so haka was actually not used all that often before battles, since it was a pretty dead giveaway of where you were. After this, it wasn't uncommon for a rangatira to challenge another chief, or some other great soldier, to single combat. This could be done to save both sides going toe to toe, which could result in a large loss of life for both sides. So instead, they would let champions decide who wins the day. Or it could be that the rangatira has a grievance against that particular person, and so fighting that person would resolve the issue that everyone was here for. Occasionally, the champion would have a couple of his mates at his back, in case things got a bit dicey. Such as, if their champion was losing, they may jump in and give him a hand, which would obviously get the other side's attendants to jump in as well. When one of the champions was killed, this would sometimes be the end of the dispute, as the losing side would flee the field, having lost not only a great toa, but that person was also likely a rangatira. These single combats did have a bit of tikanga that needed to be followed, though accounts are slightly conflicting. One source says that the challenger had to give the opponent his choice of weapons, whereas another source says that each man just used whatever they liked. However, once the fight began, all bets were off, and virtually no tactic was off the table or too low. Such as one case where a man threw sand in his opponent's eyes at the beginning of the fight. Or in another, a chief grabbed his opponent's hair and dragged him away, but was struck down by the long-haired fella's sister who ran up and bashed him over the head with a stone. Alternatively, the champion, if they were the leader of the towa which was common, they could just Call in the rest of the army to engage if they felt like they weren't going to win. A lot of this may seem dishonorable to western ears, But to Māori, when your home and family was on the line, you would do whatever it takes to protect them. Possibly even being expected to do so. Obtaining the victory was more important than how that victory was obtained. If single combat was inconclusive, or neither side wanted to go down that path, then battle would commence. As we talked about before, each rangatira would command a unit of his own men, and acted independently on the battlefield, but obviously in coordination with other chiefs. Rangatira were expected to lead their units on the battlefield. No sitting in the tent commanding or strategizing, they were in the thick of it, sweating and bleeding with their men. This ties in a lot with the loose command structure that Maori had, and how they ensured their men didn't just desert. Because there wasn't a punishment for deserting, or really any punishment for not doing exactly as instructed. It actually wasn't unheard of for someone to claim they had a dream indicating that they should leave, and then doing so. Of course, social outcasting was a big deterrent, but that wasn't always enough. With no culturally acceptable way of employing a stick to keep their toa in line, rangatira instead had to use a carrot. In peace, chiefs were expected to lead by doing, or quote, set the example of labour, This was a staple of the Maori style of leadership. People were led rather than ordered. A rangatira was expected to pull their weight and show that they weren't above the masses. Because, ultimately, they weren't. Much of Maori high-level decision-making was done by consensus. And so, a chief couldn't just be an absolute monarch, telling everyone how he wanted things done. He had to convince people, bring them around to his way of thinking. This is why the concept of the marae is so important. On top of this, he also needed to show that he was willing to do the hard yards with his people, and earn their respect, which would in turn mean they were more willing to do what he said. The same goes for war. Toa weren't ordered into battle. A rangatira was expected to be leading the charge and taking the same risks as his men. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for orders to be challenged or outright disobeyed, making it all the more important that a rangatira have a lot of mana and the respect of his men. Or, failing that, Strong rhetoric skills. He would need them to urge his men to go forth and fight, or otherwise, they would just refuse. If he didn't have very much mana, or rolled really low on his charisma skill, there was a, what you might call, nuclear option. Because it was really a last resort. You see, losing your Rangatera, regardless of whether you thought he was a dick, was not a great look. Part of your job as a toa was to keep that guy alive. People might not think you're a great toa if you came back from the battle and he's not with you. Additionally, the Rangatera is the political leader of your hapu, or at the very least, the Rangatera leading you is related to that guy. So that's reason enough to keep him alive. And the rangatira knew all of that. So if he couldn't compel his men to engage the enemy, then he would kind of force them by just charging headlong into the fray and fighting the enemy on his own. Which would hopefully, for him, cause his men to chase after him and protect him. Like the story of rescuing Caesar's eagle in Britain. This all meant that rangatira were typically in one of two places in the taua. At the front leading the charge, or at the back where they could efficiently rally their men if they began to panic. I know I just said that they mostly lead from the front, but staying in the rear was actually a pretty effective strategy. Because if the Toa began to rout, the Rangatera could say he was going to hold his ground and retreat no farther. Implying that if the toa abandoned him, that he would die. Which, again, was super bad. It was recorded that at least one chief, who saw that his men were on the cusp of routing, thrust his weapon into the ground and called out, Let me die on my land. This roused his men to draw closer to the rangatira and protect him. In general, Maori rangatira don't seem to have acted as commanders on the battlefield, at least in the western sense, and still needed the faith of their people to lead effectively. This reliance on what you might call the cult of personality of chiefs meant that if a rangatira was killed, the toa were much more likely to flee, even if victory was very nearly in their grasp. Even a rangatira just being wounded could cause part of the army to rout. In one battle, a rangatira had his men help him stand so that the soldiers could see that he was still alive and keep fighting. On the flip side, if a chief fell and his body was in danger of being captured by the enemy, this actually may turn the tide as the toa might recklessly surge forth to protect the body and ensure it wasn't captured. This didn't always work though. Sometimes the rangatira would die on the way to battle, from disease, drowning, or any sort of normal thing. And this would also potentially cause the Towa to turn around and go home before the battle had even begun. Apparently, when Marion Dufresne was killed, Maori thought that since he was clearly the rangatira, that the crew would pack up and leave. However, this wasn't the case, because the officers took over the captain's duty. As detailed by one of those officers, quote, The Maori thought that by killing Marion, whom they recognized as our chief, it would have been easy to vanquish us. Nevertheless, they ought to have seen that after Marion, the officers were chiefs also. End quote. Strategies employed during battle obviously varied a lot depending on what kind of battle it was and what they were trying to achieve. Taking a par is obviously very different from an open battle. In the case of the latter, the objective was usually to kill a few people and rout the enemy to make them come to the negotiating table. If the battle was between hapu that were related, then only killing a few people would be satisfactory. However, if there was no relation between the hapu, then the fight could get especially bloody. In some of the worst cases, the defeated could be driven from their rohe entirely. When things got particularly desperate in a battle, toa might arrange themselves in a wedge formation to be able to penetrate the enemy lines. This was seen as a drastic action, and it would be expected that the fighting would be hard and devastating, result in a quick, decisive battle, whether that be victory or defeat. The positions at the point of the wedge, and the two directly behind them, were places of honour, and usually occupied by the best tour. In part because the point of the wedge is the important part of the formation and bears the most brunt. So you want your best guys there. This was apparently used more often when muskets became a thing. And possibly not used that much in pre-European times as open fighting was much more rare. A particularly popular strategy, especially in the New Zealand wars of the 19th century, was Riri Pakipaki. Paki. Essentially meaning surrounding the enemy. Best says that this was, quote, a favoured procedure among bush-dwelling tribes, end quote. Which, you know, makes a lot of sense. It doesn't take a fucking genius to know that surrounding an enemy in battle is a good thing. And it may seem that I'm kinda stating the obvious here again surrounding the enemy is such a natural battle tactic there is no way that that doesn't make sense to literally any culture on the planet But the reason I bring it up is because BEST and other European sources have this tone in their writing, as if they're surprised that Maori are capable of making good strategic decisions, like scouting surrounding the enemy or laying ambushes. So I really want to make sure that we all understand that Māori had a firm grasp on both basic and complex military strategy in their own context, just like every other culture in existence. Even beyond that, Māori were very good at adapting for new situations and using it to their advantage. We saw this a lot with material culture, like when Māori favoured European wind instruments that were similar to their own or how potatoes became a cash crop for export. But this also extended to adapting how they waged war when muskets became the dominant weapon. Another example of this is that Best mentions that a strategy used a lot by Maori against government forces in the 1860s was to split up into smaller forces and harass the enemy. Essentially, guerrilla warfare. As the battle raged on, some war cries or orders that might be heard were ki roto," meaning "dash in." "Riria etefano, meaning "give battle my family." "Best" says children rather than family, but it basically means a group of people that you know well. "Napi," meaning "stick to it," and "tahuna," meaning "set fire to." which actually comes a bit later into use when guns become part of Maori warfare. So it essentially means fire. Another is tikarohia fetu, meaning pluck out the stars, which is an order to seek out and kill the enemy rangatira. A similar order was tikarohia te marama, pluck out the moon, an order to find and kill the rangatira leading the army, or just the most significant toa. This became more common when muskets came to Old Aotearoa, as individuals could be targeted more easily from range. Next time we will talk about the much more common sieges. How did Māori assault a pa? What strategies did they employ to capture them? Most, if not all of your questions, will be answered in two weeks time. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a wag, you can find my email and social media on Old Theodore, Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts and sources. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying March, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.